The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. So I, I love documentaries. I love documentaries of all kinds. Um, I like music documentaries, um, sports documentaries, historical documentaries. And although we are, we're about a year behind, a few months ago, we finished, Ann and I finished this documentary on Netflix called The Last Dance. Maybe you're familiar with that. It's, the, it's a 10-part documentary of Michael Jordan's final season with the Chicago Bulls. And it's, it's told through flashbacks and multiple interviews, and, and you learn the story of Michael Jordan. And that word story is really important because it's not just it's not just like his story. What you learn is you learn the story that he tells himself. Um, and the story that Michael Jordan tells himself is he is the greatest basketball player to have ever played the game, that will ever play the game. And he told himself that story over and over and over and over again. And when, when times got tough, and, and this, this documentary details that, um, you could see how there were times where he had to remind himself of who he was. That he was the greatest basketball player, probably the, I would say the greatest athlete, and maybe you disagree with that, but I think he's probably the greatest athlete ever to have ever lived. And that's the story that he is constantly telling himself. And, and what you see in the midst of that is how strong that narrative is that he tells himself. Like there's a game um, where he gets sick. They call it the flu game. I don't, I don't, maybe you remember that. And like he can barely like run up and down um, the court. And he ends up playing like one of the best games of his entire life. Like digs down deep. And, and where does that come from? And, and maybe it's training and athleticism, but I really think it's, his, I think it's his story because the stories that we tell ourselves have great power. And we almost always act out of those stories. Whatever that story is that you tell yourself, you almost always act out of it. There's a book that we're, we're reading in, in the class I'm teaching at Summit. Um, and the author is a guy named Steve Cuss. And he says this, he says, the story you tell yourself is a subconscious, ever-present filter between the outside world and your brain making meaning out of everything. And he says, it's often forged in pain and suspicion. So here's kind of what this looks like for, for some of you. Something painful happened in your past, and you project that painful thing onto any scenario that even remotely looks like that. So here's, here's an example. Maybe you were ignored as a child. Maybe that was your history. Maybe that was your past. And years later, you send a text to someone, and they don't respond. Well, obviously, they hate you, right? If that's the story you're telling yourself, isn't that true? That person hates you. How about this? You send a text to someone, and while they responded, they had the audacity to post something on Facebook before they sent you a text. Have you ever thought about that? Obviously, that person hates you. Someone doesn't say hi to you. You tag someone on Facebook, and they don't respond. They hate you. See, this, is, this story that we tell ourselves can be very, very powerful. Last week, we spent a lot of time in the headspace of Samson's parents. 
We talked about how God came to them and he, or the angel of the Lord comes to Samson's parents and tells them that Samson's going to be this great person and they're supposed to set him apart for life. In fact, that begins before Samson was born, when Samson was just in the womb. And we know that because Samson's mom is supposed to also live like a Nazarite for a period of time. And um, they tell her, this angel tells her that, she's, that Samson is going to deliver God's people, going to begin to deliver God's people. So he's given this identity. And what would that be like for Samson's parents as, as they watch their son go out and do all of these things that Cody's saying about and we're going to talk about in a couple minutes? But this Nazarite vow, somebody asked a question and it came from, came from, one of our, came from a child through a mom last week. Why, why did the angel tell the woman not to eat grapes or raisins? That's a great question. I was glad that that got asked. Here's, here's the short version of that. So this Nazarite vow is explained in, in Numbers chapter 6. You can go back and read that a little bit later. But it was just a, it was a vow that he would, have no, he would have nothing from the fruit of the vine. So in order to be set apart for God in this way, he was to have nothing from the fruit of the vine. He wasn't supposed to have wine or juice or grapes or raisins. He was supposed to totally abstain from everything that comes from the vine, everything that comes from these grapes. And it wasn't that there was something, that there was wrong with the grapes. There wasn't something wrong with the wine. There wasn't something wrong with the raisins. It was an indication that you were all in on the vow. Does that make sense? So it's not like I'm not just going to drink the juice. I'm not even going to have grapes. I'm not even going to have raisins. The vow also included not cutting his hair or touching anything dead, which if you are kind of familiar with the story, you remember last year, remember last week, remember he kills the lion and then a little bit later he goes back and he wants to go check on the lion, digs honey out of it, violating his vow. So Samson's parents would have this perfect picture in their minds and then Samson goes out and he, he shatters that perfect picture. He destroys that image. But as we talked about in Judges 14, chapter 4, his father and mother didn't realize the Lord was at work in this, creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines. There was a bigger story for Samson from God than the picture that Samson's parents had. And sometimes it can be really easy for us to get wrapped up in that we want the better picture, right? We want the beautiful image, but that's not, that's not what God has for us. So we talked about Samson's parents last week. Well, today we're going to talk about Samson himself. We're going to be, be in his headspace a little bit. And I want you to imagine for a moment that, if you can, that you are Samson. I want you to imagine that your parents, as you grow older, are, are making sure you don't eat the wrong thing. When everyone else is getting their, um, getting their first haircut, and their parents are taking a picture of that and posting it on Instagram. Like, that's not your mom. Right? You're, you're hearing that you are going to be a great deliverer. You're hearing that you are going to wreak havoc on the Philistines. We have to ask ourselves, what, like what's, what's the story that begins to develop in Samson's mind, don't we? What is he telling himself so let's pay attention to how he's going to tell this story. This is, um, this is, Sam, this is Judges 15. Remember, he had, just, um, 
he had just done all sorts of crazy things. Like, there's just no way to tell this story short. <clears throat> but his wife is given in marriage to his best man. Story picks up. Chapter 15, verse 1. Later on, during the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat as a present to his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room to sleep with her, but her father wouldn't let him in. I truly thought you must hate her, he, her father explained. So I gave her in marriage to your best man. But look, her younger sister is even more beautiful than she is. Marry her instead. Listen to what happens next. Remember Samson's story. I'm going to deliver my people from the Philistines. Samson said, this time I cannot be blamed for everything I am going to do to you Philistines. Then he went out and caught 300 foxes. He tied their tails together in pairs and he fastened a torch to each pair of tails. Then he lit the torches and let the foxes run through the grain fields of the Philistines. He burned all their grain to the ground, including the sheaves and the uncut grain. He also destroyed their vineyards and olive groves. So pause, why is Samson doing all these crazy things? Because from birth, Samson was told that he was going to bring havoc. He was going to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. So at the first opportunity he gets, he's going to fulfill the story that's in his head. Who did this? Verse 6, the Philistines demanded. Samson was the reply because his father-in-law from Timnah gave Samson's wife to be married to his best man. So the Philistines went and got the woman and her father and burned them to death. Because you did this, Samson vowed, I won't rest until I take my revenge on you. Pay attention to what's happening. Samson is going to deliver the people from the Philistines, but do you see he's doing something else with this story? There's God's story and there's his story. So he attacked the Philistines with great fury and killed many of them. Then he went to live in a cave in the rock of Edom. The Philistines retaliated by setting up camp in Judah and spreading out near the town of Lehi. The men of Judah asked the Philistines, why are you attacking us? The Philistines replied, we've come to capture Samson. We've come to pay him back for what he did to us. So 3,000 men of Judah went down to get Samson at the cave in the rock of Edom. They said to Samson, don't you realize the Philistines rule over us? What are you doing to us? Imagine what story are the, are the people of Judah telling themselves about Samson, that they would have to bring out 3,000 men. Do you think they're buying into the story? But Samson replied, I only did to them what they did to me. Well, that sounds like something a six-year-old would say, doesn't it? But the men of Judah told him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. All right, Samson said, but promise me, promise that you won't kill me yourselves. We will only tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines, they replied. We won't kill you. So they tied him up with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. As Samson arrived at Lehi, the Philistines came shouting in triumph. This next part of this verse is important. But the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson, and he snapped the ropes on his arms as if they were burnt strands of flax, and they fell from his wrists. Then he found the jawbone of a recently killed donkey. He picked it up and killed a thousand Philistines with it. So this is not the jawbone of a donkey. This is the jawbone of a cow. Um, we were talking in staff meeting when we first got a hold of this, like, did he do it like this? Because that would have been easy if, if this was his method. 
Um, I mean, just a thousand people with a with an implement, with a tool like this. Imagine what imagine what that might have been like to see that. Imagine the imagine the gore that would be all around him. Then Samson said, and again, listen to what Samson says. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've piled them in heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. Who did it? I. When we've talked about this text over the past couple weeks, every time Pastor Joe says, pay attention to the number of eyes in this text. Samson was now very thirsty and he cried out to the Lord, you've accomplished this great victory by the strength of your servant. Do you notice the little twist in the words? Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the pagans? See, that sounds like the Israelites as they came out of Egypt, right? God, you have delivered us. You've brought us out of slavery. You've brought us out of captivity to the middle of the desert. And now are you leaving us here to die? So God caused water to gush out of a hollow in the ground at Lehi and Samson received was revived as he drank. Then he named the place, so critical, the spring of the one who cried out. It's not the spring of the one who provided water. It's not the spring of God who gives all good things, who refreshes, who revives. What is Samson doing? Well, he's telling his own story. And it is still in Lehi to this day. Samson judged Israel for 20 years during the period when the Philistines dominated the land. See, what Samson is starting to do here is he's starting to, he's starting to take this story that God has given to him, this identity and this purpose and this reason for living, and he's starting to, he's starting to take this story and turn it in upon himself. He's starting to make it about himself. And there are a few indications throughout the story where that's, that's not the full case. In verse 14, the second part, it says, but the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson. That's not the first time that phrase has come up. Last week, chapter 14, verse 19, then the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. We go back in chapter 14, just as Samson kills the lion. You know what's really kind of interesting about Samson killing this lion situation? Is he's near a vineyard. Question. If Samson is not supposed to drink wine, he's not supposed to drink juice, he's not supposed to eat grapes, he's not supposed to have any raisins, why is Samson walking near a vineyard? See, Samson, I think, is this person who likes to... Who likes to be tempted by God and put himself, and we're, we see this throughout the story, he's constantly putting himself in situations where he knows the right thing to do, but he's, he's going to just kind of make himself available. And one of the commentaries, as I, I read this week, talks about like you can just kind of see Samson walking along this road next to this vineyard and just kind of like putting some grapes in his mouth, can't you? Like it would be natural. But then this lion comes out, 
And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him and he destroys the lion. And then in chapter 13, at the end, it says the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. That phrase, that concept of the spirit of the Lord coming upon Samson is used four times in the story of Samson. It was also used to describe Jephthah. It's not used to describe any other judge. And interestingly, it won't be used again. So there's something going on here in these two chapters where where it is the Lord that is doing these things. It is the Lord that is providing the strength. This has nothing to do with like his, his spiritual regeneration. And here's what I mean by that. The spirit of the Lord coming upon Samson in these moments, like didn't like he wasn't a Christian. Does that make sense? Like they weren't doing anything deep in his heart that was transformative. When this every time the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, it was just so he could he could wreak havoc. He could fulfill his role. He could kill Philistines, or he could save himself or save someone else. And that's a really important thing. But what Samson does is he takes what God has given him. He takes his identity, he takes his purpose, and he takes his story. And again, he turns it in on himself. And this is something we need to pay close attention to. Let's, uh, let's read chapter 16 together. One day Samson went to the Philistine town of Gaza and spent the night with a prostitute. Dude, like, what's going on here? Word soon spread that Samson was there. So the men of Gaza gathered together and waited all night at the town gates. They kept quiet during the night, saying to themselves, when the light of morning comes, we will kill him. But Samson stayed in bed only until midnight. Then he got up, took hold of the doors of the town gate, including the two posts, and lifted them up, bar and all. He put them on his shoulders and carried them all the way to the top of the hill across from Hebron. Now, we read that, and we probably don't have a, a reference for that. Like, what does that mean? Well, that's 40 miles. So Samson does, does this thing, and, and because there's no phrase about the Spirit of the Lord, like, we have, to, we have to ask the question. And it's not that God can't be honored through what's happening, because we're going to talk about this at the end. I'm saving it for the end of this series to talk about what does it mean that Samson's listed in Hebrews chapter 11 and faith, and, and, and why is that in here? So it's not like God's not at work, because remember, God has a better story. But the question that we need to ask ourselves is, like, what, like what story do you think Samson is living in right now? Do you think it's God's story at this point? Chapter, verse 4. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the valley of Sorek. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, Entice Samson to tell you what makes him so strong and how he can be overpowered and tied up securely. Then each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me what makes you so strong and what it would take to tie you up securely. Now, that ought to, guys, if you're ever in that situation... Ladies, if you're ever in that situation, use your brain. Samson replied, of course he does. If I were tied up with seven new bowstrings that have not yet been dried, I would become as weak as, every, as anyone else. 
So the Philistine rulers brought Samson seven new bowstrings, and she tied Samson up with them. She had hidden some of the men in one of the inner rooms of her house, and she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But Samson snapped the bowstrings as a piece of string snaps when it is burned by a fire. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Afterward, Delilah said to him, You've been making fun of me and telling me lies. Now please tell me how you can be tied up securely. Samson replied, If I were tied up with brand new ropes that had never been used, I would become as weak as anyone else. So, Sam, so Delilah took new ropes and tied him up with them. The men were hiding in the inner room as before. And again, Delilah cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But again, Samson snapped the ropes from his arms as if they were thread. Then Delilah said, you've been making fun of me and telling me lies. Now tell me again how you can be tied up securely. Like, and at this point, I think Samson is making fun of her and telling her lies. Samson replied, if you were to weave the seven brands of my hair, braids of my hair into the fabric on your loom and tighten it with a loom shuttle, I would become as weak as anyone else. Interestingly, um, the way you tighten a loom shuttle is you pound like a nail into it. And it's the same phrase from earlier in Judges when, um, when the nail, the tent peg is pounded into the head of Sisera. So while he slept, Delilah wove the seven braids of hair into the fabric. Then she tightened it with a loom shuttle. Again, she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But Samson woke up, pulled back from the loom shuttle, and yanked his hair from the loom and the fabric. Then Delilah pouted. How can you tell me I love you when you don't share your secrets with me? You've made fun of me three times now, and you still haven't told me what makes you so strong. She tormented him with her nagging day after day until he was sick to death of it. Finally, Samson shared his secret with her. My hair has never been cut, he confessed, for I was dedicated as a Nazarite from birth. Or from the womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as anyone else. Delilah realized he'd finally told her the truth, so she sent for the Philistine rulers, come back one more time, for he has finally told me his secret. So the Philistine rulers returned with the money in their hands. Delilah lulled Samson to sleep with his head in her lap, and she called in a man to shave off the seven locks of hair. In this way, she began to bring him down, and his strength left him. Then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. When he woke up, he thought, I will do as before and shake myself free. Why would he say that? What story is Samson telling himself? His strength isn't from God. His strength is from himself. He's been down this path before. And in contrast to those four times we read from earlier, but he didn't realize the Lord had left him. So the Philistines captured him and gouged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza, where he was bound with bronze chains and forced to grind grain in prison. But before long, his hair began to grow back. See the story that Samson is living in? The Philistine rulers held a great festival, offering sacrifices and praising their god Dagon. They said, our god has given us victory over our enemy Samson. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy to us. The one who killed so many of us is now in our power. Half drunk by now, the people demanded, Bring out Samson so he 
can amuse us. So he was brought from the prison to amuse them, and they had him stand between the pillars supporting the roof. Samson said to the young servant who was leading him by the hand, Place my hands against the pillars that hold up the temple. I want to rest against them. Now the temple was completely filled with people. All the Philistine rulers were there, and there were about 3,000 men and women on the roof who were watching as Samson amused them. Then Samson prayed to the Lord. Sovereign Lord, remember me, O God. Please strengthen me just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. Not for the way they have entrapped and enslaved my people. Not in righteous judgment as your weapon of choice, but to avenge my eyes. You see the story that Samson is telling himself over and over and over again? Then Samson put his hands on the two center pillars that held up the temple. Pressing against them with both hands, he prayed, let me die with the Philistines. And the temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and all the people. So he killed more people when he died than when he had during his entire lifetime. Later, his brothers and other relatives went down to get his body. They took him back home and buried him between Zorah and Eshtoel, where his father Manoah was buried. Samson had judged Israel for 20 years. I want you to notice, and there's, this actually stopped a few judges ago. We used to read that when the judges would judge Israel and would deliver Israel, there was a, pe- there was a period of peace, right? There was a time frame of peace after the judgment. But we don't see that here. We haven't seen that in quite a while. And the thing that I honestly just want us to just wrestle with today is just the question of what story are we telling ourselves? What's the thing that we are believing about ourselves? Because God has invited us into a better story. He invites us to participate in a better story. And maybe we have to ask the question, well, better than what? Better than the sinful life I'm leading? Yes. Better than the way I need affirmation? Better than the way I want money? Yes and yes, because those things come from our story. I think that God is, God is out to deliver us from the bad news that is the typical story that we tell ourselves because that's in part what I need to be delivered from. Yes, I need to be delivered from my sins. But so often, my sinfulness stems from the story that I tell myself. And I wonder, isn't that true for you? Like, if you were to stop when you, after you've sinned, and as you repent, and and as you kind of take stock of yourself, and think about why you make the choices that you make, Have you ever evaluated your story? What's the thing that that mom or dad said to you from three years old to 18 over and over and over and over and over again that you can't get out of your head? What's that thing? I shared my thing with you a few weeks ago. I told you my story of being in the eighth grade, sitting next to Chris Byers, and he touches my hair, and there was enough grease to cook a chicken. Like, I'll never forget that. 
right? That's this, like that story. Can you imagine that? What story am I writing based on that? God wants to deliver us. That's in part the good news. It's news. It's good news because it delivers us from the anxiety of being found out. That's the story that some of us tell ourselves, that someone's going to find out who we really are. And once they find that out, they're not going to want to be around me. They're not going to want to be my friend. They don't want anything. It's like if they knew what I really did, who I really was. So a lot of us are fearful of being exposed as a fool, as a hypocrite. And for us as Christians, and honestly for those of you who aren't Christians, you need to know what story you're telling yourself. You need to know where your identity comes from. You need to know where your purpose comes from. And last week when I was wearing the shirt and that bottom button was identity, and if you have that wrong, everything else about you is going to be off. Well, I think your purpose and your story are the next couple of buttons. What am I telling myself about me. See, we need to remember what story we're living in. We need to remember whose story we're living in. When I would drop my kids off, when I, when it was John, because our, our other two were homeschooled, but when I would take John to school when we lived in Minnesota, I would frequently tell him two things when he got out of the car, and he would always roll his eyes. I would say, John, remember who you are, and remember whose you are. See, I'm, tell, I'm telling him a story that I want stamped into his brain. I want him and wanted him to know who he was. I wanted him to know who he was in God's eyes. Because he's going to tell him, he's going to tell himself, he's going to have other people tell him who he is. And the way to cut through all of that nonsense is to know who you are and whose you are. To have that foundational identity and that foundational story down. I was listening to a leadership podcast and they were interviewing Corey Close, who is the UCLA women's basketball coach. And she said something really kind of fascinating and about identity. She said, being a basketball coach is what I do, it's not who I am. Did you hear that? Being a basketball coach is what I do. It's not who I am. As an identity, do you know how freeing that must be for her? Being a pastor here at Westway Christian Church is not who I am. It's what I do. And that's why, like, we can decide that we're going to do Hey There, Delilah, because if you hate that, I don't care. Because, see, I don't, I don't base... We don't base what we do here on how we might be affirmed by you. Now, we want to be truthful. We want to be obedient to Scripture. We want to do all those things. But practically what that looks like is, you know, we're going to read all 21 chapters of the book of Judges. And maybe you dislike that. Maybe you're uncomfortable with that. Maybe, especially as we get into these last five chapters, if you parents, I'm telling you, you need to read them before you bring your kids in here over the next two weeks. Because if you think this is bad, you're in for a treat. Right? Like we don't, we don't get wrapped up 
the identities of our pastors are not wrapped up in what we do. Because if they were, how could we possibly teach? How could we possibly lead? How could we possibly point you to the truth of the gospel? If we were, I don't know if I want to read that verse, it might make someone uncomfortable. I just love that. Being a basketball coach is what I do, it's not who I am. That's true for you. I hope, for those of you that wrestle with identity, I hope one day you will grasp that. I hope that you will come to the conclusion, if you're a teacher, that, that being a teacher is what you do, it's not who you are. Being a mom is what you do, it's not who you are. Being a dad is not what you do, it's who you are. Fill in the blank. I was in an elders meeting, not at this church. I was in an elders meeting one time with one of our elders was, was retired, he was in insurance and he was retiring and he was, he was probably in his upper 70s. And as he was preparing to retire, he said one evening in an elders meeting, he said, I'm getting ready to retire. I've done insurance my entire life and I don't know who I am anymore. And honestly, in the back of my mind, I just thought, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. For a person who's a Christian, for a person who was a pastor, for a person who is an elder, to have our identity so closely wrapped up in what we do is dangerous territory. And I think there are people in this room, for some of you, that's your reality. And if you didn't have that thing by which you identified, you would be a wreck. And I so want to encourage you as a follower of Christ to find your identity in Christ. Purpose. You are made to do something. See, Samson was made to do something. Yes, it was to kill Philistines. That was, that's what Samson was there for. And in the midst of that, despite fulfilling that task, he got wrapped up in himself. Do you, did we see the selfishness in the story? Our purpose is to be an ambassador for Christ. It is not to pick up the jawbone of a cow and go out and kill a thousand Philistines, although that might be fun. Like, that's not, that's not what our job is as Christians. That's not what our role is as Christians. We are to be Christ's ambassadors, pointing people to the love of Jesus. And then just this third part story, we say this all the time, the Bible's not about you. The Bible's not about you. It's about God. I hesitant to, I'm hesitant to say that you are a bit part in God's story because, because that might make us think that we're insignificant and some of us feel insignificant. We feel like we don't have much to offer. But as we read through the Bible, we see people who, who are insignificant playing minor roles accomplishing amazing things because of the power of the Holy Spirit upon them. So even though the story is not about us, we're not insignificant. We're in the story. He's invited us to participate in the story. 
And when that happens, we exchange our story, who we were, how we were brought up, what mom and dad said to us, what Chris Byers said to me in eighth grade. We exchange all of that story for God's better story. We have to recognize the wrongness of our story. Because you are not the pathetic person that you think you are when no one responds to your text. God has so much more for you than that. In Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25, Jesus says this, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. See, here's the thing. God is calling you and he's calling me to enter into this relationship with him. And part of that means leaving that old story behind. And if I continue to hold on to that story, that I'm insignificant, that I'm worthless, that I need affirmation, I need the approval of other people, if I hold on to the story of I am how much money I make, I am the house I own, I am the car I drive, I am the fantastic kids that I have, I'm the number of followers on my Instagram feed. Like if I continue to hold on to that story, I can't die to myself. I cannot take up my cross and follow Jesus. And Jesus has something else to say about that in Luke 14, 27. He says, if you don't carry your cross... And follow me, you can't be my disciple. See, if we, don't, if we don't give up all of who we are in faith, including our story, we're, we cannot be his disciple. We can't cling to these things. And then Galatians 5.24, this is Paul those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. I just want to get rid of my old story. I want to get rid of the things that, that I've told myself, that I've convinced myself are true about me. And one of the things after six, 16 years, it was 15 until maybe today, after 16 years of pastoral ministry, one of the things that I find myself as I, as I counsel people and as I talk to people is so many people are wrapped up in their own story over what someone else said or what someone else did and the way they took that on as their own identity. And that has a powerful grip on the lives of people. And what we're reading about in the book of Judges is a clash of identities. On one hand, there is who is God calling his people to be versus who they want to be. Have you seen that in the story? We know who God is calling us to be, but we want to do our own thing. That's why, again, these phrases that have come up, they did what was wrong in the eyes of God. It's about a clash of purposes. How does God want his people to be versus how they want to be? It's a clash of stories. It's a clash of identities. Who is God saying his people are versus who they say they are? Through 16 chapters, have you seen these two things clash? This competition? And the next two weeks, 
all of the phrases that have marked the first 16 chapters are all going away. We started off with, they did evil in the sight of God. So the Lord turned them over, the Israelites cried out, the Lord, the Lord sent a judge, and there was peace in the land. Those phrases are gone. I don't know if you haven't seen them, but those phrases are gone. And I think the reason that we haven't seen them very much at all is because, like us, when the Israelite people live stories of chaos, death, and destruction long enough, they become self-fulfilling prophecies. Have you noticed that in your own life? If the story you tell yourself is everyone hates you, if you tell yourself that story for long enough, you are going to find yourself angry, bitter, and completely unpleasant to be around. Won't that be a self-fulfilling prophecy? And that's what we're going to see. See, the Israelites for 16 chapters have been telling themselves, we are the makers of our own destiny. We are in charge. We know what you want us to do. We want to do what we want to do. Well, how's that going to work out for them? We got a few chapters left. And we're going to see what happens when people exchange God's story for their story. God's identity for their identity. God's purpose for their purpose. Like as I've been reading through it over the past couple weeks, the phrase that keeps coming to my mind for the last five chapters of the book is, it's a descent into hell. That's the phrase. When people are given over to themselves. So what do we do? How do we walk out of here? I think number one is really to consider what story you're telling yourself. To be real and honest with yourself. Ask God to reveal what's going on in your heart. That's scripture. See, God doesn't want to keep it from you. It's only when we know what's wrong with us that we can turn ourselves over to God and be healed by him. And part of that is recognizing what's wrong with us. I would encourage you this week to spend time asking God to tell you what story you're living. What are the lies that you're believing about yourself? How is that leading you maybe into life or away from life? When I was talking with John, we, we were, I stopped in Kearney on the way to Lincoln the other day to go to that place that I'm not supposed to talk about. We're having pizza at this restaurant in Kearney, and John, our son, works with, inter with international students for Christian Student Fellowship. And he said something really strange to me, and I was, at first I didn't know what to do with it. He said, um, Dad, our, our international students are coming to the United States. Um, they think that they are coming here to learn a skill or a job or get an education, but the reality is they're at, C they're at uh, the University of Nebraska in Kearney to encounter Jesus through CSF. And at first I was kind of like, hmm, I don't know if I believe that. But then as I thought about it, I think he's right. See, some of you are here this morning 
because your story that you are telling yourself needs to be confronted. You need to be called out of your story. You need to hear that there's a better life for you. And it's not the American dream. The better life for you is hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and being transformed by it. Being re- recognizing that falsehood of that story and accepting what God has for you. And if that sounds crazy to you, my loving question for you is how is your story working out for you? How's that going? How do you feel in the midst of living your own story? And God has a better story. He's inviting you into that, and I would invite you into that story. And like we talked about last week, if you are a Christian here, I want to ask you, how are you living out God's story for your life? How are you fulfilling the purpose that God has for you? Is one person's life different because you are living out God's story? How are you making someone else's life better through the work of Jesus Christ because of the story that you're living out? Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that you have a better story for us. I'm thankful that you desire for us to live a better story. I'm thankful that my story is not my story, but it's yours. I don't want to live the truth of my story. I don't want everything to inwardly turn in on myself. I don't want to be the center of the universe. Because I'm not. And neither is any other person in this room. And yet where we get ourselves into trouble is when we think we're the center. When we think everything revolves around us. And then something happens daily to reveal to us that we are not in charge, but you are I'm thankful that despite the messiness of my story, you used me. You plucked me out of the place that I was heading. And you redeemed it and renewed it and given me a new purpose. And you want to do that for every person in this room. So God, help us to see in Samson what it looks like to turn your story in on ourselves. And you can be honored and you can be glorified. But what you want is us living out your purpose. Living out your story. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.